Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking at um, the middle portion of this chapter here in just a moment. Um, Next week, we're going to close out this section of Romans. Section 9 through 11 has been kind of, as I mentioned before, it's kind of like a a parenthetical statement, many scholars say, uh, that it just kind of sits in the middle of the, the, the big part of Romans. That it's just like this, almost like this Paul chases some rabbits. That's why we know Paul was a Baptist preacher, right? Because he chases this rabbit about Israel for about three chapters. But actually, this is important to us as well. It's tempting to look at it and say, what does any of what chapters 9 through 11, what it says about the nation of Israel, what does it have anything to do with us being Gentiles living in 2020 um, in America? And it's easy to understand why this was an issue back in the time that Paul wrote this book to the Roman believers in the first generation of Christianity, but we're like 2,000 years removed from that first generation. So the question is, are chapters 9 through 11 really relevant to us today? And the simple answer is yes. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And this is something that we can apply to many passages of Scripture that we sometimes wonder, what does this mean for me today? Number one is that Scripture tells us to preach and to feast on the whole counsel of God. That means that this whole book is important, and it has equal importance. And you say, even the book of Numbers? Yes, even the book of Numbers, it has importance. There's a move today by some that say, well, we don't really need the Old Testament anymore because, you know, Jesus doesn't really show up until Matthew, and that is not true. That is not a full understanding of theology because Jesus is present in every part of Scripture. This whole book is about Jesus. It points to him. You can tie that thread to Jesus in every portion of Scripture. The other reason that it's important, not just because we need the whole counsel of God, is because there are some things which we'll see today that that are yet to happen regarding the nation of Israel and regarding the church, regarding Gentile believers that we have to be aware of, and they should serve to deepen our faith and our respect for God's work. It should also serve as a warning to us as well. And also, the reason that we consider this as important is because God put it there. And if God put it there, he put it there for a reason— and his reason is for our benefit, so we need to consider it. And we, we've, we've definitely gone, chapters 9 through 11 have definitely been like the hardest portions of Scripture, I think, that I've ever had to tackle to try to preach as I've committed to, being, to preaching expositorily. Because in chapter 9, we saw that God is sovereign and he is working his will throughout the ages. We saw that he has chosen to save those who place faith in him and that saving grace is a necessity for our salvation, that we cannot be saved unless we've placed faith in Jesus Christ and that God has chosen to save us. God has chosen to make salvation available. It is his decision to do that, not because of anything that we did to be like, God looked down at us and say, oh man, you did this, so you are fully, you know what, I'm going to redeem you now. No, God had the plan of redemption in place even before he knew that Adam and Eve would sin. This is God's sovereign grace to us. The other thing we saw in chapter 10 is we see that God is patient, but he's also just. That no one can be saved who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And therefore, since that is the case, we must make sure to preach a Christ-centered gospel so that all who are lost can know that salvation comes through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And then last Sunday we saw, uh, in chapter 11, we saw that God is faithful and he doesn't give up on people. He doesn't give up on his people and that he works in all seasons. Both the good times and the bad times, in times when we reject and in times when we receive, he is working for the purpose of redeeming humanity. And he doesn't reject his own. God created us. He has provided a way for us to be redeemed. And he will not give up on that until the day that he has appointed so today we pick up in verse number 16, we're going to look at another pretty difficult passage of Scripture. And I usually say let's dive into this passage, but since the passage is an allegory about a, uh, an olive tree, I'm going to say let's grab a branch and start climbing. <laughs> Get it? That was real cheesy, wasn't it? All right. Anyway, all right, so let's look in verse number 16 at our passage. It says, now if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them, and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated tree. Do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. It reminds us, don't boast about your righteousness because you're not the one who brought salvation to yourself. It is Jesus who did that. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, or that Israel, Israel rejected so that I could receive. And that is an arrogant way of looking at it as well. Paul says, true enough, in verse number 20, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and his severity, his severity towards those who have fallen, but his kindness toward you. If you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. Again, we see God's sovereignty and his power there. Verse number 24, for if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. Because as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it is our food. It is our sustenance. It is what feeds us. It is what sustains us. It is what drives us, informs us, challenges us, convicts us. So I pray this morning that all of those things will take place in Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts. Pray that we would open our hearts to what you have for us, our ears to what we need to hear in the truth of your word. And I pray this morning that as your word goes forth, that it won't return void. I pray that as your messenger... It would not be about me. It'd be about you. I pray this morning that as we hear, that we will submit to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. All right. Oh, I just want to ask a real quick question. How many, how many agriculturalists do we have out there? You like, to, you, like to grow, you like to grow stuff, 
okay? A couple of you. Um, you like to grow, like, how many, how many of you garden? You like, you like to garden? Especially now, right? Because food is getting really expensive. I wish that I could grow stuff because it would be a lot cheaper to do, right? Um, how many of you try, like to grow flowers? Okay. How many of you can, can grow trees? Okay. I mean, they just grow, you know, that's just what they do, right? Um, I've, I've told you before how terrible I am at growing anything. Matter of fact, if I do try to, it's, it's a miracle we have two children that have grown because I am terrible at this. No, if, I, if I remember to water, I overwater. If I don't water, they, they die of dehydration. It's like everything I try to do to nurture God's creation is just wrong. So here's what I think. God told Adam and Eve to, you know, like sustain the garden, but I, I feel like God told Adam and Eve, later on one day, you're gonna have this great, 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 great grandchild named Derek, and he shouldn't touch anything in, the, in, in, in any garden whatsoever, okay? Because he is death to all living things. Um, but anyway, uh, for those of you who like to garden, you know the tricks, you know the fertilizers to use, you know all those types of things. Um, there's, this, there's this technique that many people use called grafting, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But Noelle this week, she went out and with her own money, sweet little thing, she bought a, uh, a bonsai tree, and I forgot to bring it with me. She didn't buy the bonsai tree. She bought the bonsai tree kit. It came in a box about this tall. All right. And for those of you who want to know what a bonsai tree looks like, it's, it's that. And when I say bonsai tree, many of you probably thinking Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi and wax on, wax off and, and all of that type of stuff. Okay. Bonsai trees are beautiful, but they are in a Japanese art form from like ancient times gone past. Right. It takes a lot. So she gets this, this little box and she pull, starts opening it up and there's, there's these little pieces in there. There's, there's a little baggie and it's got little seeds, like five little seeds in it. And I'm like, oh, we're not going to start with the tree. We're going to start with the seed. This is going to be good. And then she pulls out this little puck about this big, and it's the soil that when you put water in it, it magically kind of, you know, grows. And then there's an itty-bitty little, you know, clay pot like this that you're supposed to put the soil in and start it out. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be a miniature tree. We are starting out in the very infant phases here, okay? And then there's these itty-bitty little scissors that you're supposed to use for pruning them because you're supposed to shape the trees the way you want them to be and, and everything like that. So then we get all these little pieces out, and then we pull out this big big, thick instruction manual that's like 55 pages long, okay? And Noelle starts reading. I'm like, okay, honey, so what do we start with first? We got to put the seed in the, in the thing. And she goes, okay, says, open up the seeds. Okay, we open up the seeds. She goes, you need to soak them in water for 48 to 72 hours. Okay. And Noelle's like, okay. And then it says, and then after you do that, you pull them out and you put them on a paper towel and you put them in the refrigerator for three weeks and let them sprout. And I'm like, man, things that stay in the refrigerator sprout a lot quicker than that normally. But anyway, so, and then after that, you take it out and then you want to go ahead and start the water of the soil and let the soil grow for a few days. And the soil grows for a few days. And then you take and you put the sprouts in there and then you begin watering them. And it says after like a period of like six months, you'll finally see a shoot spring up. I'm like, oh my goodness. Okay, and then it just goes on from there and it starts talking about how you let it grow there for about a year and you water it and you got to keep it in shade at certain times and light at certain times. And I'm like, this is more intense than having a child. And then it goes on and it just keeps on going about how you got to change it out from pot to pot. And then there's other times you want to put it outside. Other times you want to bring it back in. You want to read to it. You want to pamper it. You want to take it out for dinner. I don't know. There's all these things that you have to do to this bonsai tree and then you have to 
shape it. And you have to go out and you have to buy wires and all these things. And you have to prune it the right way. And it's like, and if you prune the wrong branches, it'll kill the whole thing. And I'm going, oh my gosh, we get to the end of the 55 pages. And Noelle looks at me and she goes, dad. I was like, yeah. She goes, because I'm dad now. I'm not daddy anymore. She goes, dad, I think this might be too big of a commitment for me. I'm like, yeah, because it says after 10 years, you'll be able to enjoy your mature bonsai plant. And I'm thinking, honey, you'll be graduated from college. Possibly your grand, my grandchildren will enjoy this bonsai tree, right? She's like, yeah, this is too much of a commitment. I'm like, you are not kidding, right? Because a long stem rose is too much of a commitment for me to keep alive, okay? And so, uh, so anyway, that, that bonsai tree is still in its box. We put it back in its box and it's there. If anyone wants to try this bonsai tree, you are happy to come and grab it from us, all right? Um, but, uh, but bonsai trees, so another thing that, that, that we see in this passage this morning, uh, growing trees I, I thought was easier than it really is, or thought was easier than it really is, but um, we see Paul use this metaphor of an olive tree, all right? And you'll see this picture of an olive tree. Is there, is there an olive tree picture up there too? So, yeah, olive tree, not too far different from a bonsai, except it's bigger, right? And uh, it probably didn't take as much. But these are olive trees. We don't see them around in our area a whole lot. They're very prevalent in the Mediterranean areas, especially during ancient Mediterranean times. Uh, Olive trees were big business. Olive trees not only produced olives, which are amazing as long as they're not black olives, because black olives are disgusting. Everybody knows that. Good, saved people know that it's the green olives or the Kalamata olives or nothing, right? Anybody with me? on that? Okay. All right. But not only did they eat the olives, olive trees provided good shade for people in the hot sun in the Mediterranean areas. And also they were produced for their oils. Their oils that kept lamps burning, that they used for cooking, that they used a lot for different healthcare products and all those things. Olive oil was definitely something that was, that was, that was vital to the industry and still is to the industry and to the livelihood in Mediterranean areas. So an olive tree was something that every Roman reader, everybody knew about. And the Bible uses the, the, the metaphor of an olive tree in several different ways throughout Scripture. Um, properly caring for olive trees was something that most people understood in this letter in the days of the Paul, and they would understand it pretty well. Obviously, we don't know as much. I mean, up until now, how many of you thought that olives grew in gardens and not on trees? Did get it, Olive Garden? Okay, never mind. We'll move right on. This is why I shouldn't, I shouldn't, tell, I shouldn't tell jokes anymore. Just stick to the stuff, all right? Um, scripture uses the metaphor of the olive tree a lot. In the poetic books of the Bible, they use them to symbolize beauty and health and the vibrancy of life. In the historical passages, it uses it to refer to God's blessings and to the peace that he brings. Like back in Genesis, when the dove brings back an olive branch with fruit on it that symbolized to, uh, to Moses or to, uh, to Noah that he, they could get off the boat, that peace had come and God had brought an end to the flood. Um, so we see all of these different things take place. And in the prophetic passages and New Testament passages, they refer to the olive, olive tree as a symbol of Israel. And this is what Paul is doing here in our text. So if we look at the different metaphorical parts of an olive tree, when Paul is talking about this olive tree in here, because how many of you, when we went through that, were like, okay, olive trees, branches, all this stuff, it's kind of hard to get a little bit. In verse number 16, Paul talks about the root of the olive tree. And he says, if the root is strong, the tree will be strong, and the root is faith. And specifically here, the root is the faith of the patriarchs, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob there. 
It's the faith of the patriarchs. It's not the people. It's the faith that they had to branch out into this covenant with God that God would be their God and they would be his people and that God would bless them through the nation of Israel and through Abraham's seed and all those things. So the olive tree is rooted in the faith of the patriarchs. And then we see two different kinds of branches. We see pruned branches, branches that were part of this cultivated tree that was taken care of, but had been pruned away because of their unbelief or because of their lack of faith. And that symbolizes the unbelieving nation of Israel who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Paul's been talking about that through chapter 9 and chapter 10. And he comes and he uses this metaphor now and he says, these branches that grew on this olive tree of faith somehow turned away from faith and they rejected Jesus and they are no longer suitable to stay on this tree. But then he talks about a wild branch that was grafted in, that God takes and has grafted in these wild branches. Because you had two different types of olive trees. You had olive trees that were grown in groves and orchards, like the picture that we saw just a minute ago. And then you also had olive trees that kind of sprang up in the mountains and in different areas that really didn't produce as good of fruit, but could still be used. Matter of fact, you could take a good olive tree branch, a cultivated one, and graft it into that tree, and then it would spur into new life into that tree. But here's what happened. God describes in reverse, taking an a wild olive branch and grafting it into a healthy tree. And all of a sudden that fruit is able to grow there, that it's accepted there. It's not something that was normally practiced to graft wild branches into a cultivated tree. But God said, I'm doing this by my grace. I am grafting in the Gentile people into this tree of faith for a time being. So that's kind of the understanding of the olive tree. That's the parts of the olive tree. So the root is the father's. It's the faith of, it's the faith that leads to salvation. And then the branches, the the pruned branches are Israel. The grafted branches are the Gentiles or the Gentile church in this age as well. If a farmer found a patch of wild trees and grafted branches, he could turn a patch of wild trees into an orchard a lot faster than they could taking it from a seed. And so this is oftentimes what they would do. But this is really a metaphor for what God intended for the nation of Israel. God intended for the nation of Israel to produce branches that could be, that could be grafted into these wild trees like the Gentiles and to grow that faith. But when they rejected God, reversed that process and began to graft in the Gentiles into that tree. So what does this mean that there are only wild branches on this proper root? Does this, is that what this means? As we look at this tree and the Bible says that God pruned away the good branches and grafted in the wild branches, does it mean that only Gentiles are on this thing now? No. It means that only the unbelieving branches were pruned off. There are still a number of Jewish people today, remember that remnant that we talked about, a number of Jewish people today who see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They're called Messianic Jews that trust Christ. And what it brings us to understand is that the path to salvation, whether you're Jew or Gentile or Greek or Hebrew or whatever you may be, the path to Jesus is the same. It's, or the path to salvation is the same. It's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and faith in him. The root of our faith is what causes us to flourish in Jesus Christ. So there's a quick Mediterranean agricultural lesson for you, but I want to consider three quick things this morning before, uh, before we dismiss that we have to understand from this metaphor that Paul uses over 2,000 years ago 
that we as Gentiles, as those wild branches need to understand. And I want to give these to you very quickly. Number one, there is an encur- there's an encouragement, there's a warning, and then there's an exhortation. The first thing is the encouragement. Here's the encouragement that we see in this passage. The first encouragement is don't give up on people. Do not give up on people. What we see about God our Father and about Jesus Christ in this passage is that he is everlasting and he is patient and he is kind and he does not give up on us. How many times have we seen through, past, through chapters 9 through 11 that God continually lays out salvation and forgiveness to people, even those who reject, even the ones who had no reason to reject and the people of Israel, who had every reason to believe in Jesus. God had given them every leg up to that. And they still rejected. The Bible says that God has not given up on them. He has not cast them away. Because what we see in our passage later on is that God doesn't give up on his people. Look at verse number one again of our, of our, of our passage. We looked at this last Sunday. Verse number one says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? What is the answer, church? Absolutely not. Not just, no, I don't think he has. It's absolutely not. He has not given up. And then Paul goes on to say, I'm prime example. He's like, I was public enemy number one to Jesus Christ, and then he came to me, and my life has been turned completely around. And then in verse number 11 of chapter 11, it says, if I, I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall or to fall away? What is the answer again? Absolutely not. They have not stumbled to completely fall away from God, because God still has a plan for them. Look at what it says in verse 23. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. What is it saying? If the, if the Jewish people who have rejected Christ, or if anyone who is living in rejection of Christ, will come to a place of salvation, will come to a place of placing faith in Christ, he will graft them in again. God is not done. God is still patient. No matter how many times we reject, no matter how many times we turn away, we turn our back. God is always patient to forgive. God is always patient that when we come to Jesus, we come to his son, he will graft us in. He will save us. That's how good God is. Romans chapter 11 verses 25 through 26 says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So he tells about a future that's coming where there's a partial hardening. That means that this, this kind of age of rejection of Israel is only for a certain time. And we can't understand thousands and thousands of years like God can. We think 2,000 years, I mean, how much longer is he going to wait? We don't know. But the Bible has promised, God has promised us that he is not done with his people And folks, the way that applies to us is we must not be done with people either. There are people in your life, I know this, that you have been praying for, that you have been witnessing to, and they seem like hard cases. And you're beginning to wonder, do I give up? Do I stop? Maybe they're just not one of the elect. And here's what we have to understand. God doesn't give up. Neither should we. We should never give up. Paul's like, I realize that the majority of God's chosen people have rejected Jesus, but God does not, has not, and will not reject his people. They may have stumbled. They may have hard hearts right now. They may be broken branches right now, but God has not given up, and he has the power to graft them back in through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I was the furthest thing from a believer. I was the quintessential rejecter of Jesus until I met him on the Damascus Road. 
And some of you, you may have that very testimony of your life, that you were totally against God until you finally came to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And then he says, even those broken branches right now are watching these wild branches and they're jealous of those being grafted in. And God is continuing to pursue his people. God, understand this about God. God desires that the lost be found. It is his desire that the lost be found, church. And he uses us as his church to be those finding agents to take the gospel far and wide. And even after rejection after rejection from his own people, Paul never gives up either. Remember what he said. He said, I want my friends to be saved so bad that I'd be willing to give up my own salvation for them to be saved. Paul hasn't given up, and we must not either. So church, this is the encouragement that we catch, is that God has not given up, we can't either. We can't give up on the hard cases. We can't give up on the ones who say, you know what? I don't know if this church thing is for me anymore. We can't give up on those who continually say no to the gospel, slam doors in our face, say, man, would you quit being a zealot? Who continually say, this is a fairy tale that you believe. All those, we can't give up on prayer. We can't give up on loving. We can't give up on reaching them and teaching them. Because God doesn't give up on the hardest case of all, which is his own people. So the question this morning is, who do you feel like is a hard case in your life? Maybe it's not just a person. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a certain type of person. Because as much as we like to try to say it, in our culture, we're prone to stereotyping a lot, aren't we? We like to put people in, in, in positions of, you know, just to try to, you know, understand who they are. We like to put them in certain groups and say, you're this, so you can't understand this, right? What if God did that with us? You see, I'd feel that way with that anguish in my heart like Paul. I'd feel that way about my kids or my family. And some of you know what it's like to pray for years, for decades, for lifetimes for someone to come to Christ. Some of you know the joy of actually seeing it happen, and some of you know the sorrow of never seeing it come to fruition. But whether a person receives or not is not up to us. What's up to us is we cannot give up. See, there was an article that was released last week, uh, this past week, and some of you who follow me, maybe on social media, saw I reposted about, about a missionary in Colombia who was ministering to these people that were completely closed off to the gospel. They didn't have the Bible in their language. They didn't have anyone to come and say the name Jesus in their language at all. And so this missionary group went over. They spent years training to learn the language. They spent three years with this one girl named Sarah, and last week she was baptized as the first convert out of that tribe in Colombia. But it took three years, and it took years of training, and it took years of prayer to get there. Folks, don't give up. Sometimes people are like bonsai trees. It's going to take a long time. But is it going to be worth it? Yeah. Now, I know that Noel heard that, and we're going home to grow that bonsai tree, right? All right. So people sometimes are like bonsai trees. They don't spring up real fast. So we must not give up on the hard cases. Keep praying, keep sharing, keep loving. That's what God does with us. So that's the encouragement. Don't give up. The second thing is a warning that we must not give up on faith. There's a warning to us that we must not give up on faith. And this is as a church. This is individually as believers. Here's the warning that he gives. It's a warning to the wild branches who are grafted in. Look at verse number 18. It says this, do not boast that you are better than those branches, talking about the unbelieving Jews. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root. The root sustains you. You're not sustained by who you are. You're sustained by who Jesus is. 
then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. It's almost tempting to say, well, if God wasn't going to save the Gentiles, if the, if the Jews believed, I believe he was still going to do it. But I think this is not the way he intended. This is not the way he had planned, just like he didn't intend for Adam and Eve to sin. That the Jews would have believed and then they would have been grafted into an unbelieving world and we would have been saved through that. But he says this, true enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Man, that's tough, isn't it? Therefore, consider God's kindness and his severity. His severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you. That would be an interesting song, wouldn't it? You're a scary, severe father. To you are. That'd be a scary worship song. We talk about his kindness, but we can't forget his severity too. His kindness to those who believe, but the severity that comes to those who don't. And he says this, remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So Paul reminds the reader that pride is never the way to go for God's people. Like if you're ever wondering if pride's the way to go, just know that that's off the table. Pride is never a good look on God's people, ever right? Pride is what led to the legalism of the Jewish people, which blinded their eyes to the Messiah who came. Their pride came in the fact that they, like, I followed all the laws this week. I followed this law. I followed that law. I do everything. It kind of reminds of the parable of Jesus with the publican and the tax collector, right? Or with the publican and tax collector, it was the same thing, but the, the religious man and the tax collector who came in and he said, I'm not like this tax collector. I give. I do this. I do all that. And he thought that the pride of all the things he did made him closer to God. And that's what the Jewish people had done. And then Paul delivers this warning here that pride will cause us as well as Gentiles, will cause us to forget the importance of faith and it will minimize the importance and preciousness of Christ. You ever met Christians? I know there are none here at Graceway. But have you ever met Christians who, they just kind of have an air about them that like, God really lucked out when he got me. Right? Like, they kind of look down on others and kind of examine everybody. They're fruit inspectors of everybody else. But they don't want to inspect their own fruit. These are the kind of people that Paul is talking to here. Don't get high-minded. The warning for the Gentiles in Paul's day was not to get heady or arrogant. And I think we need to heed that warning to keep from getting complacent in our faith. You see, the biggest warning that we have to grasp today is that we are not beyond being cut off. Say, hold on for a second. That sounds like you're saying that I can lose my salvation. I'm not saying that. Follow me here. Look back again at verse number 21 if you don't believe me. He says, if he didn't spare the natural branches, why would he spare the grafted ones? What was it that got Israel cut off? It was their unbelief, right? He says, because of their unbelief, they were cut off. If he didn't spare those natural branches, why would he spare us? And then that unbelief led to compromise and it led to apathy and it led to denial. So how do we get there to being cut off, church? We get there the same way. Through compromise, through taking our salvation for granted, through thinking that we can go through religious motions and God will be happy with that. And I fear that this is the description of so many Christians today, especially for the ones who've been around church life so much, because it's really easy to kind of get to know the words, to get to know how we stand and what we do and when we stand and when we don't and all of those types of things that we begin going through the motions and it becomes less about Jesus and more about the motions. See, the more we become familiar with the motions, the less we need Jesus, right? And so that's what happens. We become complacent. There's a, there's a book that I read recently called The Unsaved Christian. 
It's written by a pastor in Tallahassee, Florida named Dean and Sarah. And I want to read just a portion of that to you because he says, today in America, especially in the area that we live in, which is considered the Bible Belt and South, there's a lot of people who are Christians, but they are culturally Christian. And here's what it means. So you think that church is a good thing, and you might even be involved somewhere. Maybe you're involved in this very one, but they are not committed. They're not involved in ministry. They don't sacrificially give, and they couldn't tell you the last time that they told somebody about Jesus. You come to church about once every couple of months because you're just so busy. Plus, extended family has a beach house or something like that, so you try to get down to it for the weekend whenever the weather is nice. It's also a real hassle to get the kids out the door on a Sunday morning, but miraculously, we're able to get our kids ready for school every morning, but nobody brings that up. Again, I didn't write that. This guy did. Church is a good thing, especially for the kids, but they're just not committed. Or we're culturally Christian, or we believe in Jesus as a form of Prozac. A Jesus who makes me feel calm and gets me out of a jam, but has never really offered my life to him in full sacrifice and surrender. I want Jesus when things aren't going right, but when things are going right, I don't need him. You ask these people if they're saved, and they say yes, and they will tell you about a time when they prayed a prayer and got baptized, but they just don't live their lives as if Jesus was Lord. Here's the stark realization that we have to have, and this is the warning from Paul. These are the kind of branches that God pruned off in Israel. Don't think that he won't prune those branches off in the Gentile wild branch too. See, maybe you're like me. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home and you had a drug problem. You were drugged to church every single time the doors were open. And at some point you got saved because that's what you're expected to do. But it didn't come to a point where you realize that Jesus is not just my savior, but he is my Lord and he is my master and he is worthy of my service and he is worthy of my entire life. So in arrogance and in foolishness, we sometimes abuse God's grace so much that we think that we can just treat the things of God and his word casually and flippantly, and God will just let us get away with it. And here's where we get into Prozac Jesus. This is the easiest way to do it, is just treating this hour a week as my time that I serve Jesus, and the rest of the time is my time. Folks, one hour a week is not serving a master and Lord. Serving a master and Lord is a life calling. And here's the thing. If God was willing to cut apostate Israel off, he will cut off an apostate church. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the day is coming when that will happen. That the church will grow apostate and will eventually be cut off. And that's what he's talking about on a group level. He's talking about Israel being cut off on a group level, but there were still individual remnants that stayed. Church, here's the thing. We can't settle for being cut off. We must settle for being the remnant. There is apostasy that is growing and it will grow. But understand that Jesus' full name is Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't just make him Savior and then somehow one day grow into making him Lord. He is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So there's the warning that we remain vigilant in our faith because faithlessness will lead to being cut off. And then there's an exhortation, and I know we're about over time, so I'm going to move through this quickly. Look at verse number 22. Here's the exhortation, is that we must not weaken the gospel. How do we get to a place of apostasy? How do we get to a place where we lose our faith, we give up on our faith, is we have a weak gospel presented to us, or that we have a weak view of Jesus. Look at verse number 22. It says, therefore, consider God's kindness. 
Well, what is his kindness? <laughs> that when we deserve death and sin, he gives us life and forgiveness. But also consider his severity. Well, what is his severity? That if you do not repent, you shall all likewise perish. Those are the very words of Jesus Christ. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. I think sometimes I have to remind myself this as a preacher. This is not a game. This is life and death. This is kingdom business. This is spiritual warfare. That as the word of God is preached and as it is preached around the world, that there are also forces playing against it to distract, to cause doubt, skepticism, voices that would rise to say, don't listen to the truth. Consider God's kindness, but also consider his severity. This verse seems to fly in the face of the doctrine of eternal security, doesn't it? He says, hey, do not be arrogant, but beware because you could be cut off. We say, well, hold on for a second, Pastor. You always say, once you're saved, you're always saved. And yes, that is true. But once you are truly saved, you are always saved. True salvation is a salvation that gives Jesus lordship of your life. Look again at verse number 20. True enough, there'll be... They were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but beware. And in Hebrews chapter 3, it says this. Watch out. This is that consider the severity. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that it won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly unto the end, the reality that we had at the start. So what is this saying? Is this saying that the doctrine of eternal security doesn't apply? No, it says the doctrine of eternal security applies if we continue in our faith in Jesus Christ. See, a faith that quits on Jesus, it shows the fruit. The Bible says we're known by our fruit. The fruit of a faith that was never truly centered on Jesus is one that quits. Did you catch that? A faith that was never truly centered on Jesus is a faith that quits and gives up on Jesus. In other words, if you, only if you maintain your profession of faith and you're surrendered to him in the end, you'll be saved. Does that mean that we won't struggle? No. Does that mean we won't go through hills and valleys? No, but it means, what it means is someone who is eventually able to say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Chances are they were never truly saved to begin with. They never truly came to Jesus to begin with. So no, we can't lose our salvation once we truly have it. If we are truly saved, we will endure in our faith in Christ. So the real doctrine of eternal security is this. Once we're saved, we're always saved and we are forever following. So let's add to that. Once I'm saved, I'm always saved and forever following Jesus. And following him doesn't mean that I'm always following him happy-go-lucky and with, with a smile on my face. It means I'm going to go through my peaks and my valleys. I'm going to go through seasons of doubt, but I don't go through the season where I give up. Saving faith is a staying faith. So when you take this to a church level, we understand what Paul is saying here. He is saying, he's shedding light on the future of the church as he is shedding light on the future of Israel. He says, one day, Israel is going to come back and be the main believing people in the world. The Gentiles will go the way of Israel into rejection one day. And he says, the church will lead the way because they'll fall into an apostate state. 
Look what he says in verse 25 and 27. Jewish people are going to come back to a place in faith after something that is called the fullness of the Gentiles. In 1 Timothy 4, in 2 Timothy 3, and in 2 Thessalonians 2, we see a future foretold where the church will turn to apostasy. Where the Bible talks about there will come a time where they will heap into themselves teachers having itching ears and they won't endure sound doctrine and all those things, all those passages we've talked about before. They're they're over there in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, and 1 Timothy. So we're telling a time when that will happen. That's the church going apostate. And this is when the fullness of the Gentiles will come to be. But church, there's always that remnant. And every generation that has lived has thought, are we in that time? Are we in that time of the great falling away? Are we in that time when we want teachers with itching ears? And here's the charge and the challenge that I lay before you and before us as a church is that we submit now to just be that remnant that's faithful to Jesus and to the gospel. Because a faithful church is one that hinges on the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we stay faithful to the gospel? We keep Jesus at the center of it and we follow him as our Lord. We don't weaken our faith by looking for loopholes so that we can rebel. And that's what a lot of people do a lot of times. They say, okay, I know the Bible says this and I know that, you know, all this stuff. I know the Bible says this, but truly God has to understand it's like 2022, right? He has to understand that we're like beyond that ancient time. God says it, it settles it. And we commit to be part of that faithful remnant because when all is said and done, Jesus is the way we are grafted in and faith in Jesus is the way we stay in. It will always be that. So as we close out this morning, I want to ask you just a couple of questions. Here's question number one. And this is, this is what I mentioned just a moment ago, that a realization that I have to keep before me all the time. Are you just playing games with this Christianity thing? Was it just something that sounded good one day? He said, yeah, I think I need to go ahead and, you know, identify myself as a Christian, but he never really paid attention to what it truly meant. That this is not a game, this is life and death. Do you know that you know that you know that when you die, heaven will be your home? And what are you basing that off of? What are you basing that off of? Are you basing it off the fact that you were raised in a Christian home, that you knew the right thing to do, so you just did it? Were you basing it off the fact that you realize that you are lost and undone without a Savior and that He and only He is worthy of your faith and that He and only He is worthy of your service? Once you're saved, you're always saved and you are forever following. If you've been playing games, I I ask you to do this. Do soul searching. Say, Lord, speak to me. Do I have a faith that is real? You see, this past couple weeks, we saw, if you pay attention to like, you know, celebrities and stuff, you know that there was this famous trial going on between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, right? Right, and they sided with Johnny Depp, which ironically is the first time a man has ever won an argument with a woman in his life. Um, But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Um, But... Throughout this case, everybody was paying attention to this trial, man. They were paying attention to witnesses. And it's, it's almost, it's like, man, I mean, it, it, got, it became a big thing in our house. Like, did you hear what Amber Heard said today? Did you hear what she said? Like, I don't care. I always know women are crazy. But anyway, that's another thing, too. I said I live with three of them. I know. Um, but let me ask you this. If you were put on trial for your faith... And what you had as testimony against you was the testimony of your friends and your family. 
would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Yeah, that person is saved. You see, because a real faith is a real following faith. Do you know Christ as your Savior? If you don't, today's the day. You may say, well, I've been in this church forever. <laughs> I don't care. It's better to be in this church forever and get saved at the last second than never be in heaven. If you don't know Christ, come to him. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. I know this wasn't the most eloquent message I've ever preached, but I pray that I was able to convey the message that we see here in this passage. And the question of the hour is, do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, come to him today. Maybe the other question is this. If you know Jesus, but you haven't been as concerned about others that don't know him, maybe today should be the day. Then you come and just commit to him. Say, Lord, I'm going to be a better witness for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you have your will and way in this invitation now. Do as you see fit. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand today, if you need to come for any reason, please do so. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.